We've been talking as we look through the book of 1 Samuel about the concept of an undivided heart. And for two months, we've been talking about having an undivided heart and being fully devoted to the Lord. And we've seen some very positive examples of what that looks like. Stories like Hannah and Samuel who are sold out for the Lord. We've also seen the corresponding other side, people like Eli and the children of Israel who while religious in nature, sort of going through the motions, seem to be lacking something in their heart. We've looked at what it means to be have an undivided heart. We've looked at uh, the fact that it means to be serious about prayer, to be open to listening to God's voice, to see ourselves as serving God and not as God serving us, not trying to manipulate God into meeting our needs, but realizing that we're here to bring Him glory. We saw last week how having an undivided heart means we don't put our hope in politics or in people or in anything other than God himself. And we've seen that to have an undivided heart means to realize that God is sovereign, that he's over all things, that he's in control of everything, that he's the one who reverses circumstances and brings glory to himself. But the question we haven't addressed yet in our study is how do you get an undivided heart? Like maybe you've been sitting here listening for a couple of months and you're like, yeah, you had me at hello, I'm for it. I want an undivided heart. How do I get one? How do I become that kind of person? I want to be like Hannah. I want to be like Samuel. I don't want to be like Eli. I don't want to be like the children of Israel. But what do I do? How do I get to the point where my heart is fully and completely devoted to the Lord? Well, that's the question we want to answer this morning. And to do that, we want to answer that question from the life of the first king of Israel, King Saul. Take your Bible, if you will, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9. It's page 195 in the Bibles the church provides. If you need a Bible, there's one under your seat or in the rack in front of you. If you turn to page 195, you'll be right where we are. Now, we're going to talk today about a man named Saul And Saul's one of the most complicated characters in all of Scripture. The reason why he's so complicated is because Saul is both a genuine hero and a villain. Now, many of us are familiar with Saul's story, and when we hear the name Saul, we often let the end of his story, which is the villain side, cloud our judgment about his life, but we forget the fact that at the beginning of his life, he is a genuine, bona fide hero. That he is somebody that God uses to do mighty and great things. Next week, we're going to look at his fatal flaw and what he does wrong. But this week, we're focusing on how God uses him in great and powerful ways. And he's going to help us answer the question, how do you and I get changed hearts? How do we become people that God can use in mighty ways. When we're introduced to this character of Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 9, listen as I read verses 1 and 2 where he's introduced to us. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. Saul's introduction to us is an impressive introduction. He's physically a very impressive person. He's taller than every other Israelite in the whole nation. He's not even close. He's a giant of a man. 
But not only is he very physically impressive, he comes from an impressive family situation. We're told about his dad that his dad was a man of standing. What that means is he was well respected. It also means that he was well off. That Saul's coming out of rich circumstances. That his family is a good family. That they've been blessed by God. That they've been prosperous. And that they've got a lot of money. Now on paper, Saul looks like he's got everything going for him. But as you and I know, as often is the case, especially when people come out of situations of privilege, that what the paper says does not always match with how things go. That while on paper, Saul seems like he should be a superstar, that our first introduction to Saul is, is that he's not all that he's cracked up to be. He's not all that his background might lend you to think he would be. He's not all that his physical appearance might cause us to believe about him. And we come to see that in the very first story that we meet Saul in. It's 1 Samuel 9. I'm not going to read you the whole story. We're just going to pick some verses up here and there. I'd rather tell you the story. And the story begins with some lost donkeys. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you and I. But apparently, you know, donkeys, that's a significant amount of financial investment. And when Saul's dad loses his donkeys, he sends Saul and a servant to go find them. Now, I don't have any idea how you find lost donkeys. I don't know if there's a donkey lost and found. I don't know if there's a donkey helpline you call. I don't know how it works. Samuel, or Saul apparently didn't know either because it, we're told in the story that he just starts wandering around, kind of going from town to town like, hey, you guys seen any donkeys? Just a pack of donkeys just casually walking around. Those are probably our donkeys. He's not finding them and he's going from town to town looking for donkeys. And at some point, he realizes, yeah, I'm never going to find these donkeys. So he says to the servant, let's just go home. This isn't going very well. Let's just go home. Well, the servant, who's got a good head on his shoulders, but has kind of been quiet this whole time. I mean, after all, Saul's in charge. I'm the servant, not supposed to say anything. At this point, the servant finally speaks up and he says, well, you know, the whole time we've been walking around looking for donkeys from city to city, we've been going around the town of Ramah. And in Ramah, that's where Samuel lives. He's the prophet. And so the servant suggests to Saul something Saul should have done in the first place, which is, why don't we go ask God for some help? Maybe God can help us. We can go to the prophet and he can inquire of the Lord for us. Well, at this point, Saul doesn't really have any idea who Samuel is or what he's doing or where he lives, but he's like, well, mm, that's not going to work. We don't have any money to give to him. The servant, you can kind of see him rolling his eyes back and he's like, well, yes, we're out of food. I get that. But we could probably scrape together a quarter of a shekel or something of silver and give it to him. So Saul finally agrees. Okay, fine, let's go. So they go to meet Samuel. Meanwhile, while Saul's been out looking for his donkeys, God's been out looking for Saul. And God comes to Samuel and tells him, hey, I'm going to bring you a guy who I want you to anoint king. Look in verse 16 of chapter 9. God says to Samuel, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people for their cry has reached me. Last week we saw that Israel asked for a king and they shouldn't have asked for a king because their motives were wrong and God was angry with them. 
But here we see the mercy and grace of God that even though they ask for the wrong thing in the wrong way, God loves them. God wants them to be set free from the, the Philistines. And so he's like, he wants to give them a king, not a king who's going to fail, a king who's going to succeed, a king that's going to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. And God says, I've got my man, his name is Saul. And he says to Samuel, he's going to come wandering here tomorrow looking for some donkeys. When he shows up, I want you to tell him he's going to be king. So meanwhile, Saul and his servant arrive at the town of Ramah. Well, Samuel knows they're coming, so he's at the gate waiting for them. Saul doesn't know who Samuel is. He walks up to the man and he says, do you know where the prophet is? Samuel says, I'm the prophet. Saul says, we're here looking for some donkeys. Samuel says, I've got something important for you. I'm going to have a dinner in your honor. Come back tonight. We're going to have dinner. Don't worry about your donkeys. Your donkeys have been found. They're safe. God's concerned about them too. He's taking care of it. He's got something important though he wants for you. And then Samuel says, the hope of all of Israel is looking towards you. Meaning, you're the one who's going to rescue us. You're going to be our king. To which Saul replies, verse number 21, but am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? Well, Samuel ignores what Saul has to say, invites him to the dinner. After the dinner is over, the next morning he tells the servant to go away and Samuel, alone with Saul, anoints him to be the first king of Israel. This is the first scene in which we meet this man named Saul. And when we meet him in the scene, it's very interesting the kind of personality and character that we see coming out. First of all, we can tell from this story that although on paper Saul looks great, he's not much of a leader. Remember, he and the servant are going out to find the donkey. Saul's strategy is, well, let's just kind of wander from town to town, and when we don't find them, let's just go home. But it's the servant who kind of keeps prodding him along. The servant is the one who's leading. He has to lead from behind. But he's the leader who kind of says, let's go, let's go talk to the prophet. Let's go seek help from the Lord. When Saul says, no, that's not going to work, it's the servant who says, hey, look, we can, we can scrape together a quarter shekel of silver. We can make this work. And you get this very strong sense that Saul's more of a follower. That he's more influenced by the people who are around him instead of being a take charge kind of guy. Let's get this problem solved. He's much more of a passive, indecisive sort of, well, what are we going to do? And the servant is the one who's doing the leading. Another thing that we notice about Saul is that he seems to be pretty spiritually disengaged. After all, he seems to have no idea that they're anywhere near Rama. He also has no idea that there's a prophet named Samuel who lives in Ramah. Now remember, Samuel is the most famous Israelite in the whole nation. He's the prophet over the whole nation. He's done some pretty incredible things for the nation. Everybody knows who Samuel is, except somehow for Saul. Even his servant knows who the prophet is. He knows if you want to go talk to God, go talk to Samuel. Saul has no clue. He's no clue how you would talk to God. I mean, listen, this would be like somebody from a Catholic background not knowing who the Pope is or not knowing where the Vatican is. Samuel is the religious leader in all of Israel. Saul has no clue who he is. He's pretty spiritually disengaged. He's not connected to the religious life in Israel whatsoever. We also notice about Saul is that he's got a pretty wrong-headed view of who God is. 
See, he says, no, we can't go to the prophet because we don't have any money to give him. Now, the servant's just humoring Saul by saying, let's find a quarter of a shekel of silver and we'll give it to him. They never actually exchange money. No money's ever given. That's because God's not going to accept money. No true prophet would ever take money to pray to God for help. That's not how it works. Now, you can tell Saul probably comes out of a money background. Because in his background, in his family, money makes things happen. That's sort of his situation. And he thinks of himself, nobody's going to ever do anything for me unless I pay them. I'm the rich guy. The only reason anything happens is if I give them money. You can kind of see the wheels turning. And he's taken that mindset and he's projected it onto God. But not only will God not take his money. When Saul shows up, God gives him a free dinner through Samuel and chooses him to be king. But Saul doesn't have a correct view of who God is or how he works. Fourth and finally, Saul seems to be pretty negatively oriented. He seems to be one of these guys, the glass is always half empty. He's one of these guys who nothing's ever going to work out. Hey, we're never going to find these donkeys. Let's just go home. The prophet's not going to help us. We don't have any money to give him. I can't be king. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin and my clan is the smallest. Now it's true. He was from a small clan. But we were told at the beginning of 1 Samuel 9 that his clan was pretty wealthy, that they were pretty well respected. He's actually from a good clan. And it's true. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. And it's possible to view that negatively. Benjamin, after all, at the end of the book of Judges, which happens right before 1 Samuel, that tribe commits one of the most heinous sins in Israel's history. As a result, the rest of the tribes turn and attack them, and they shrink down and become one of the smallest tribes. But that was five or six generations ago. And so while it's possible to view being from Benjamin negatively, there also was a very positive way to see it. See, Benjamin was this little tribe that happened to be situated right in between the two major players, the two major tribes, Ephraim in the north and Judah in the south. And most people believe that neither Ephraim nor Judah would have accepted a king from the other tribe. But little Benjamin right there in the middle that both of them were neighbors with, they would have gladly accepted a person from Benjamin to be king. So there's a positive way to view being from the tribe of Benjamin, but Saul can't see it. He's just simply negatively oriented. We're never going to find the donkeys. Prophet's never going to help us. I could never be king. I got the wrong bloodlines. I'm from the wrong tribe. He's one of those people that's always, it won't work, it won't work, it won't work, it won't work. Now, we've done a little bit of amateur psychoanalysis on Saul here. But lest you think it's just us importing sort of modern ways of thinking about things onto this character, we get some confirmation for realizing that this is Saul's personality from something Samuel says about him in 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, after Saul has been king, Samuel says to him, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. See that phrase, small in your own eyes? What Samuel's telling us is that he recognized about Saul the same thing we're recognizing about Saul. That although Saul is physically impressive and comes from a wealthy background, he is plagued with huge insecurities. That when he looks at himself, he feels completely inadequate and insecure. 
It's that insecurity that's making him a follower. He doesn't have a plan for finding these donkeys. It's the servant that has to be the leader. It's these insecurities that's causing him to be spiritually disengaged and to have a wrong view of God. Why would God ever do anything for me unless I paid him? It's these insecurities that are causing Samuel to be so negative, to think nothing's ever going to work out. My life's always going to be this way. Nothing good could ever happen to me. It's this insecurity that causes him to take anything that you could view positively or negatively and always choose to view it negatively. Now that's the first meeting we have with Saul, that he's plagued by huge insecurities. But he still is anointed king. And the first act that he has or does as king is in 1 Samuel 11. I want you to turn over there and look at that. First time we meet him, he's looking for donkeys. We're now going to see the first scene in which he shows up as king. Now, if you remember from last week, we said the reason why the children of Israel wanted a king is because Nahash the Ammonite was bearing down on them and causing them all sorts of problems. And they didn't want to pray and ask God to solve the problem for them. They wanted a king who would do it. Well, Nahash this whole time has been bothering the children of Israel and what he's been doing is he's been going from town to town. And currently in 1 Samuel 11, he's outside the town of Jabesh-Gilead. And at Jabesh, he's surrounded the town and he's besieging them. The men inside the town realize the Ammonites are too strong for them. And so they, uh, they sue for terms of surrender. And they ask Nahash, we want to surrender. What are the terms we have to surrender in? And Nahash says, here are the terms. I get to pluck out the right eye of every one of your Israelite men. Those are the terms of surrender. Well, we pick up the story in verse number four. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud because they think we're next. Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen. They say, wait a second, I thought he was the king. <laughs> Didn't he become the king? He did. But remember in Israel, this is their first king, which means they don't have a palace. They don't have a royal court for him to preside over. Nobody's had a king before. They don't know what to do. So after Saul is anointed king, he just goes back to farming. He doesn't know what else to do. While he's farming, he hears this news. And he asks, middle of verse 5, what's wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they turned out as one man. The story goes on to tell us that 33,000 Israelite men show up under Saul's leadership. He leads them into battle. He divides them into three companies. These three companies absolutely rout and destroy Nahash and the Ammonites and completely drive them out of Israel. It is a huge, amazing victory. At the end of the victory, this is Saul's first action as king. All the people get together for this giant celebration. And somebody points out, hey, there were a couple people in the group here who didn't think that guy should be king. Let's kill him. Saul stands up and says, no, 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 no. We're not killing anybody else today. This victory has been given to us by God. And we're here to celebrate how he delivered us. And they hold this giant celebration. Now, question. 
Does the Saul of 1 Samuel 11 look anything like the Saul of 1 Samuel 9? Here he is in 1 Samuel 11. He is decisive. He is courageous. He is a leader. People are following him. He's not wandering aimlessly around. He's got a plan. He knows what he's going to do. He tells everybody, come to me. He's obviously connected to God. He gives all the credit to God. We look at this and go, that's a superstar. That's a hero. Wait a minute. What happened to the highly insecure, indecisive, wandering aimlessly about, influenced by his friends, spiritually disengaged with a misguided view of God who thinks nothing good is ever going to happen. What happened to that guy? Something has changed between 1 Samuel 9 and 1 Samuel 11. In 1 Samuel 11, Saul has an undivided heart for God. He's wholeheartedly, he is all in. And figuring out what changed between 1 Samuel 9 and 1 Samuel 11 is the answer to the question for you and I. How do we get an undivided heart? How do we move out of our insecurities, our fears, our anxieties, our negativity, and become the kind of people who are wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord? So the question is, what happened to Saul? And the answer to that question is in chapter 10. So 1 Samuel 9, old Saul. In his natural personality, highly insecure, completely bound by negativity. 1 Samuel 11, new Saul. Wholeheartedly devoted to God. 1 Samuel 10 is the difference. Now in 1 Samuel 10, Samuel is going through and narrating for Saul the signs he's going to experience to know that God is the one who's chosen him as king. And there are three signs. Samuel is telling Saul, this is what's going to happen. Then in the rest of chapter 10, he'll be anointed king. Chapter 11 is his first action as king. But we pick up the story as Samuel is telling Saul the third sign. Verse number five, chapter 10. After that, you, Saul, will go to Gibeah of God where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, flutes, and harps being played before them. And they will be prophesying. Now look at verse 6. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power and you will prophesy with them. And look at this. And you will be changed into a different person. You will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hands find to do, for God is with you. Jump down to verse 9. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. What happened between 1 Samuel 9 and 1 Samuel 11? God changed Saul into a new person. 1 Samuel 9 is not an aberration. That is his natural personality. He's completely bound by insecurity. He's filled with negativity. He can't do anything. He's not a leader. He's a follower. He's influenced by people around him. That's who he is. Even though he's tall and though he's rich, he's small in his own eyes. But in 1 Samuel 10, God changes him. He makes him a new person. He gives him a new heart. How does he do it? By putting his spirit on him. Remember what Saul did after he became king? He just went back to farming. But when he hears the news of what's going on, the spirit that God put in him took over. 
And suddenly in 1 Samuel 11, Saul is a new man. He is decisive. He is courageous. He is bold. He is wholeheartedly devoted to God. And the difference is God changed him. Saul didn't go through a 10-step program to being the best king you can possibly be. It wasn't some sort of rigorous training program that he went through. It wasn't that he resolved, hey, look, if I'm going to be king, I got to get my act together. I got to deal with this insecurity. He didn't make New Year's resolutions. It was an act of God who gave Saul his spirit and the spirit transformed Saul into a new person. Now, this doesn't mean Saul's never going to make another mistake that he's done with all these insecurities, that everything in life is fine. We're going to see next week that he's going to have some major problems. But the point is, is that God has given him the spirit to open up the possibility that, Saul, you don't have to be that person anymore. You don't have to be bound by your insecurities. You don't have to be trapped in that kind of stuff anymore. You can be a new person. And Saul got an undivided heart because God gave it to him. And that's how you and I get an undivided heart. It's an act of God's grace to give it to us through his spirit. Now you say, well, wait a second. Of course God gave Saul a new heart. He picked him to be king. The king better have a good heart and the only way he was going to get it was God going to give it to him. I'm not a king. Why would God give me a new heart? Well, what happens to Saul in 1 Samuel 10 is actually a picture of what God wants to do and is doing for every single person who is a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. See, there is a prophecy coming after 1 Samuel in Ezekiel chapter 36. This is a prophecy that God says is a promise from him to us. That after Jesus dies and is resurrected, God says, here is what I'm going to do to all who believe in him. I will give you, plural, every single one of you, you and I, this is who he's talking about. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. It's the same promise. God is saying, hey, look, I did it for one guy in 1 Samuel 10. I'm going to do it for all of you through the power of Christ. When you come to faith, I'm going to take out your old heart, your heart that's filled with insecurity and negativity and anxiety and all of these concerns, the heart that is a follower, the heart that's influenced by everything. And I'm going to give you a new heart, a heart that has my spirit. And he's going to give you power. And you're going to be different than you were before. It's this prophecy that Jesus is drawing on in, for, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. As he says to the disciples, But you will receive power. When? When the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The same thing that happened to Saul. He was just out plowing his fields. But because God had given him a new heart, when the time came, the spirit came on him in power and he became a brand new person. The same thing happened with Jesus' disciples. The last we see them in the gospels is that they're this immature, bickering, confused bunch. But in Acts, they're just waiting in Jerusalem. But when the spirit comes, they're absolutely radically transformed. And the question is, how did the world get changed by these 11 guys? As the Spirit came on them. And they became new people. Different people. 
no longer enslaved to their insecurities, but now opened up to the power of God. This is the promise that God has given to every one of us who are believers in Jesus. This is our story. Now what this teaching means is this. So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer in Jesus and you look into your own life and you see yourself wandering aimlessly around, influenced by everybody around you, trapped in negativity, hopelessly insecure, bound by addictions and by failures and by sins and by problems. The answer, my friend, is God wants to give you a new heart. He doesn't want to take your heart and fix it. He doesn't want to put bandages over all of the problems that you've experienced. He knows what sins have been done against you. He knows what you've done. He knows that you're incapable of obeying him on your own. What he wants to do is give you a new heart. He wants to change you into a different person. I'm up here this morning not because I did something to make myself here. It's because God gave me a new heart. That's the promise he wants to give to you. To make you a new person. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the heart that's filled with insecurity, with negativity, battered by sin? And God says, I want to take that right out and give you a new heart. Jesus dies and is risen from the dead, not so that we could reform our own lives, not so that we could try harder, so that we could be better people, but so that God could perform radical surgery and take out the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh and cause his spirit to be in us and suddenly to be able to have the power to obey. If you're here this morning, wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you like to be a new person? Wouldn't you like the possibility that you don't have to be enslaved to all those insecurities? It's not your natural personality that will dictate who you are. By God's grace, when you come to faith, this is what he does for you. If you're here this morning and perhaps you are a Christian, maybe you're a new Christian. Maybe you've been walking this road for a few months or maybe a couple of years and you're thinking to yourself, What am I supposed to do as a Christian? How does this thing work? Like everybody else around me, they're in on the secret. They know all the things to do. They know when to sign up for this and how to do that and where to go for that. Tell me the 10 things I'm supposed to do as this new Christian. The point of this message is, is that it's not what you do. It's what the spirit does. Is that when you came to faith, God gave you his spirit and his spirit is the one who guides you. His spirit will lead you through this. Saul's just simply plowing his fields. If you came to faith as a school teacher and you're thinking, well, now I'm a Christian. Am I supposed to quit my job? Do I have to become a pastor? Do I have to be a missionary? What does this mean? No. What it means is, is just keep teaching school. If God wants to move you to do something else, his spirit in you will tell you when the time is right. Saul just goes back to plowing his fields. Keep doing what you're doing. Teaching school, teach school. Come to church, come to church. Be part of a community group. Do what the Spirit prompts you to do. And realize that you being a strong, powerful Christian is not a result of your effort, but of the Spirit's effort. Don't worry about it. Trust in the Lord. He's rescued you. He's going to lead you through. It's easy for us to get all wrapped up in anxiety and think, well, I, I got to get, get ahead. I got to be doing more stuff. It's the Spirit. The spirit in us, changing us and transforming us. But maybe you're here this morning and as I was talking about Saul, you were thinking about a particular person in your life. Maybe you're thinking about a young adult that you know. Somebody who seems on paper like they should have everything going for them. They've been born with lots of disposable income. They've been given every chance. Maybe they've got lots of physical gifts, but nothing's going right for them. They're wandering aimlessly through life. Maybe they're living in your basement playing video games. 
instead of getting out and doing anything with life. And you're thinking to yourself as you're hearing Saul's description and you think, yeah, I know somebody like that. He's wandering aimlessly through life and he's influenced by his friends more than he is a leader. He's spiritually disengaged and everything is negative. Nothing's ever going to work out for him. Or maybe when you heard Saul's story, you're thinking about your spouse. And you're thinking he or she is trapped in insecurity. I see that negativity. I see that natural personality. Or maybe you're thinking about a friend who you want desperately to see make a difference for Christ, but they seem not to be changed at all. Or maybe if we're honest, we're thinking about ourselves. And we're looking at Saul and saying, I see those insecurities. I see that indecisiveness in myself. I see that negativity in me. But you are a Christian. And we say, well, where's the change? Where's that new person? Where is that new thing? Why isn't my son or daughter different? Why isn't my spouse different? Why isn't my friend different? Why aren't I different? The answer for you and I is in our connection to the Spirit. That's the road for us to look down. It's not have anything to do with our personality. It doesn't have to do with society. It doesn't have to do with friends. It doesn't have to do with the rest of the things. It doesn't have to do with things that have been to us. The connection is our connection to the Spirit. Something's wrong if the Spirit isn't changing us, if we're not becoming a new person, if we're not displaying at least at times something new, then our connection to the Spirit is the answer. We got to look down that path. Maybe we're not genuinely believers. Maybe we're quenching the Spirit or hindering Him from doing His work. That's the road to look down. We can go down all these other tangents and say, well, if I hadn't been born into this family or if this hadn't happened to me or if I didn't have this kind of personality or if I didn't have this genetic structure, those are all dead ends. The answer to the question of why you and I aren't experiencing this kind of change has something to do with the Spirit. God says to us, walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, be open to the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. If we're not experiencing the newness of life, something's wrong in our connection to the Spirit. And what we want to do is pray to God to pour out His Spirit on our children, on our spouses, on our friends, on ourselves. That's the answer. Don't let the rest of this stuff distract you. It's the Spirit. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking... I'd like to make a difference in the world. I'd like to make a difference for eternity. I listen to these two women who are up here who come out of Muslim backgrounds who are doing amazing things. And I think, I, I, I could never do anything like that. I don't have that kind of background. I don't have that kind of courage. I don't even have that kind of personality. I'm scared to get up in front of people. The point of the teaching is it has nothing to do with your education. It has nothing to do with your background. It has nothing to do with your natural personality. If you are naturally scared of being in front of people, that makes no difference whatsoever. If you're not naturally a leader, that makes no difference whatsoever. If you're not naturally spiritually engaged with God, that makes no difference whatsoever. Because when God gives you his spirit, you are now qualified to be a new person. Saul is absolutely trapped in insecurity and negativity. He's got nothing naturally going for him. Yes, he's tall. Yes, he's rich. But inside, he's a train wreck. But when God's spirit comes on him, he changes the world. He's a hero. And that's God's intention for every single one of us here in this room. God doesn't want us to live average, ordinary, everyday lives trapped by our genes, our experiences, our past, and our failures. He wants to make us a new person. He wants to give us a new heart. He wants us to use us to do amazing things. And if you're sitting there listening, no, 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 that couldn't be me. That's Satan. Satan. 
What God is saying to you is, no, I swore to you. I would put my spirit in you. I would give you a new heart and you would change the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that it's all you and not us. That it's the spirit from beginning to end. Lord, we sometimes forget as we look back on our lives and think, well, but I worked hard. I I did go to church. I I did obey. I did try to do the... Lord, it was your spirit from the very beginning. Lord, every single person in here who is a new person is a new person because of your spirit. Not all of us. We know the demon of insecurity. We know the monster of negativity. We know the pull of our own natural personalities. But God, in your grace and mercy, you're transforming us. I pray for any here who are not yet believers, Lord, help them to see that they're fighting a hopeless battle. They're not going to fix their own hearts. God, I pray for those who are new Christians here who are confused about this journey and are thinking, I got to do A and then B and then C and then what do I do next? Lord, cause them to relax and to rest in you and to trust in your spirit. Lord, for those who have a loved one or themselves are not experiencing that kind of change, Lord, open their eyes to realize something's wrong in that connection with the spirit. And for each one of us, Lord, let us not believe Satan lies that we have nothing to offer. Of course we have nothing to offer in who we are, but you're making us new people. And God, we praise you for that and we thank you for that. And just like Saul at the end of 1 Samuel 11, we give all the credit and all the honor and the glory to you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.